welcome to Inner Revolutionary Radio. Today's host is Todd Benton, and I'm his co-host, Helen Hillix, and we are very, very pleased to have UC Berkeley economist Claire Brown today as our guest. What if Buddhist economics ruled our world? A conversation between host Todd Benton and Claire Brown, UC Berkeley economics professor and author of Buddhist Economics. The economic and political system that reigns supreme does not care about the health or welfare of anyone. It's a machine that chews up executives, secretaries, and fast food workers alike. It's a machine that is chewing up the earth itself. But what if this weren't the case? What if our economic system was based on a wholly different model, a model based on the notion that quality of life should be measured by more than national income? UC Berkeley economics professor Claire Brown will join us today to answer these questions and more. She'll share her approach to organizing the economy that embraces rather than skirts questions of values, sustainability, and equity. In her new book, Buddhist Economics, Brown incorporates the Buddhist emphasis on interdependence, shared prosperity, and happiness into her vision for a sustainable and compassionate world. We cannot thrive in a world where we sacrifice ourselves and others to an economy and societal norms which are ruthless and which put short-term self-interest before our health and the health of the earth itself. Join us for this important conversation. Todd? Yes, I'm really excited to talk to Claire today. Uh, and we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, we have some interrevolutionary news that's really connected to what Claire is talking about. So, first on the news is this is from the Oregonian, the Portland Oregonian from April 10th. And it's the city of Portland and the county of Multnomah commit to using 100% renewable energy by 2050. Uh, The city of Portland and Multnomah County's top elected leaders committed Monday to transitioning to 100% renewable energy sources by 2050. Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, who just a few months into his mayoral term, says he has no illusions the energy goal will come easily. Quote, they will be difficult to achieve, he said, of the push to meet all electricity needs from renewable sources by 2035 and to transition away from all remaining dirty energy sources, primarily fossil fuels, in the transportation sector by 2050. And this is also a quote, we're going to actually going to have to make deliberate steps and deliberate investments and deliberate policy changes in order for this to become a reality, he said. And I'm committed to that. Portland and the county joined 25 other U.S. cities that have made the 100% pledge in recent years. Salt Lake City and San Diego, for example, plan to ease off coal and natural gas by 2032 and 2035, respectively. Last January, the Sierra Club started the Ready for 100 campaign to urge cities to transition to 100% renewable energy sources. So what, that's so cool because that's really where so much of the... Um, the carbon comes from, you know, is for cities. Uh, I mean, it it happens, obviously, rural people rely on electricity (laughs) too, but um, it's really awesome that these cities and so many cities are stepping forward to, uh, even in the face of what's been happening with the, or what is happening with the budget and cutting back on the EPA and so many other things and Trump seeming to double down on uh, 
fossil fuels, which is to me crazy. But um, anyway, it's just really exciting to hear that because in some ways it's in the hands of cities in in many ways, at least. Um, So the next story is related as well. Record new renewable power capacity added at lower cost. This is from the Environmental News Network on April 7th. As the cost of clean technology continues to fall, the world added record levels of renewable energy capacity in 2016 at an investment level 23% lower than the previous year, according to new research published by UN Environment, the Frankfurt School, UNEP, that's the United Nations Environment Program Collaborating Center, and Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Global Trends in Renewable Energy Investment 2017 finds that wind, solar, biomass, and waste-to-energy, geothermal, small hydro, and marine sources added 138.5 gigawatts to global power capacity in 2016, up 8% from the 127.5 gigawatts added the year before. The added generating capacity roughly equals that of the world's 16 largest existing power-producing facilities combined. Here's the real uh, thing that stood out for me. Investment in renewables capacity was roughly, was roughly double that in fossil fuel generation. So that bears repeating. Investment in renewables capacity was roughly double that in fossil fuel generation. The corresponding new capacity from renewables was equivalent to 55% of all new power, the highest to date. This is interesting also. The, in, the total investment was $241.6 billion, and that's excluding large hydro, and that's the lowest since 2013. And this was in large part a result of falling costs. The average dollar capital expenditure per megawatt for solar, solar photovoltaics and wind dropped by over 10%. So that's a really exciting development that we are continuing to add, you know, uh, way more renewable capacity than we are fossil fuel. And that's really important. So, yeah, we're going to say something, Helen. Well, yeah, I was just going to say say that that despite Trump's Trump's emphasis, emphasis, we are still the, the world at large is still focusing on renewables. Yeah, I was I was reading recently that China. If you look at the um, the graph of their carbon emissions, it's actually plateaued and it's it's actually on its way toward going down. It looks like, so that's also really good news. Very so good. With, yeah. So with that as a backdrop, I'd like to introduce our guest today, Professor Claire Brown. So I know we introduced you know the concept of Buddhist economics in the introduction, uh, but we I'd like to start with what? How do you describe what is Buddhist economics? So, thank you, Todd, for having me. I'm I'm delighted to talk with you about Buddhist economics. Buddhist economics really just brings together shared prosperity where everyone matters and how Mm. they live matters. And then it brings into that, how do we care for nature and the environment? And one more thing Buddhist economics cares about is relieving suffering. And this is where we then back up and take a global viewpoint and look at the UN and the work they're doing to get rid of extreme starvation and poverty and to care about women's and children's education and health care especially, as, as well as men. But the women are dragging behind, although they're catching up, and of course caring about human rights. So we bring all of that together to ask how can our economy provide a meaningful life for everybody to live comfortably, 
but to develop their full potential while we care and enjoy Mother Earth. Seems sounds pretty simple. I don't I don't understand why that's not the case already. You know, it's like <laughs> well, you know, you know, it sounds incredible, and of course, it's what the innerrevolution.org is fighting for, Claire. I mean, that's why we felt such a resonance with you and wanted you to be on the program, is because your ideas are in resonance with with our beliefs that that we're only going to find our way forward if we support oneness, accountability, and mutual support. Those are the three tenets of the inner revolution. So we consider you an inner revolutionary in the larger, more global sense of that word. Um, oh, I absolutely agree. Yes, we're totally compatible in, in our goals and the way we sort of look at what we want and how to get there. Although I'm pretty optimistic about how we get there because economists, we already know the policies that reduce inequality. We already have the policies and the technology we need to, to reduce global warming and, and move to a clean, completely clean energy economy by 2050. So we know all those things. And I know that one of the things you all think a lot about is how do we get people to change their behavior so that they feel much better about themselves and their lives and helping other people and taking care of the earth? Well, wonderful question, Claire. Tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, economists have all these policies that we've studied and we know about inequality and sustainability but and, and how to reduce suffering. But we really are just clueless about how to change behavior. So that's, that's what I would really like to talk about because you know as much as I do, and that's really – to me, one of the biggest questions, although I'm happy to talk a lot about the policies for to reduce inequality and to save the earth, mm-hmm. um, but when you get right down to it, we, that's, we, we, those policies relate to what we have to demand governments do. So, yeah. Todd, I really liked your, your um, reading over the things that were going on at cities, because you're right. Right now, government means cities. Yes. To take action means local and state level. And... And that's good. But what you left out of your news, because your news was all positive. I know. Was, <laughs> there was one article in, the, in this week's news that really bothered me, and it comes back to this crux of how do we change our own behavior as consumers. That um, was about how the SUV and pickup trucks are just selling like crazy. They're the high profit margin. The electric vehicles are languishing. Yes, and this and this is all over the U.S. So, like the sales of SUVs and pickup trucks range from sixty to seventy percent of all vehicles. Whether yeah. you look at California, you look at the U.S., no matter how you dice it, that means two thirds of all the vehicles being sold are really big gas guzzlers. And that's when Trump can and the. Trump and the fossil fuel industries turn around and because I've heard them say they say well we're only giving people what they want although right. of course they're doing all these muscle car ads and they're making on TV you look any all these ads are for this is the car for you and why and how comfortable it is and all the technology it has to play games or whatever um, and people though unfortunately are buying into it yeah they're also very expensive cars yeah, it's it, it, that's why they have a large profit margin. I mean, uh, it yeah. uh, it kind of stumps me. I mean, we have a small SUV. We have a, a Subaru, which is you know for um, 
you know, the highest gas mileage for that kind of vehicle. And we, you know, we do go to the mountains and go skiing and things like that. So, you know, everyone has to look at their own needs. But I see so many people with these huge, you know, pickup trucks, F-250s, you know, that in our neighborhood in Bonzel, it's like, okay, do you really need that huge Subaru or the in- enormous Nissan van? You know, so it that's it's a great question. And let's explore that. How do we help people see the impact that's the accountability piece you know of what we are doing well one of the things one of the things that i read in an article uh i don't know if you wrote the article i don't think so someone wrote it about you claire um but you were talking about the fact that we aren't taught to value the interactive activities that actually do bring us the most reward we are taught that consumerism is the answer to all of our desires and and that will make us feel better in whatever uh, situation we find ourselves. And, you know, I think that's the the crux of the shift that needs to happen is that we have become addicted to consumerism. But I often think, what would happen to our economy if we really, I, I watched a movie recently called The Minimalists, I, I can't remember the name of the two young guys that uh, that co co-directed and wrote and starred in the movie, and they're going around the country, you know, lecturing to people about minimalism and the how much happier they are and how much happier, you know, thousands and thousands of people are who are focused on minimalism. Um, but what would happen? That's my question to you in terms of you were saying you were going to talk about the economic principles, if we shift from a consumer-based and spending-based economy, what happens to the economy? How do we generate, uh, you know, the money that will keep us afloat at at a different kind of level, but will keep us afloat? That's a great question because it's actually, there's a very positive answer. I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, we, we don't need to reduce output. What we need to do is totally rethink and restructure the output. So think of it this way. Think of the economy as a pie, which economists have traditionally done. Okay, so you have a big pie. That's our total materialistic output. And then how you slice the pie determines who gets what. So are you going to give, you know, a huge proportion to the top 1% and teeny little slices that are insufficient to the bottom 10 to 40%. Now, how do you slice it? So we talk about that a lot, and that's inequality. But the thing that Buddhist economics brings into saying, just a second, you can't stop there. You have to talk about what's in the pie. And so far, that's really what free market economics and economists more generally ignore. They don't talk about what's in the pie. So right now, 70% of the pie in the U.S. is consumption. But it disproportionately is consumption by the top 5% and especially the top 1%. And so there's a lot of consumption of luxury goods or positional goods. They're goods that are, how big is my house compared to my neighbor's house? How long is my yacht compared to their yacht? How much more exotic was my vacation than their vacation? It's like bragging rights or making yourself you know, have high status. And that's what Buddhist economics really thinks is hurting society, that what we need to do is to take the consumption from the top 
and give it down to those in more need who can spend it on, you know, food, clothing, shelter, uh, health care, education, all the things their families need. And then their kids would thrive and they would thrive. So first of all, we want to restructure the consumption we have. But secondly, we want to shift from a consumption-oriented economy much more to an investment-oriented economy where investment's in health care, it's in education, it's in clean energy. We have an enormous need to invest in clean energy. It's in building infrastructure for livable cities where people can bike and ride and, and have parks and cities that really are fun to live in and to be out in, not just covered with cars. So, so let me let me let me ask There's a you, lot we could do. <laughs> well, I want you to keep going, but I just want to make sure I'm I'm getting the picture because I'm a little dense sometimes. You know, that that what you're basically saying is moving the money from the ridiculous, you know, we've got to have five Range Rovers and a 20,000 square foot home and a 35 carat diamond to uh, spreading that money around and having people invest having everybody be able to invest in a decent home and a decent car and decent clothes and decent health care for everybody. So it would just be splitting the money up and, and focusing it more on things that we actually need instead of ridiculous luxuries and only to the top 5%. Is, is, am I on the right track? Oh, you're, you're so spot on. You, you said it beautifully. Yes, yeah, so think about it as everyone should have a comfortable life, and then they should be able to have the opportunities to develop their full potential because they don't have to worry about food, clothing, shelter, safety, taking care of their kids. Right. Because the other thing you would add to what you said is a lot of the investments done publicly by the public sector or the government Mm-hmm. Um, the investment, a lot of it, and, and it's, it's also by companies. So a lot of the investment by companies and the government would be to create these wonderful cities and clean energy, as well as the education and health care. Did you hear about that? It was a few months ago. There, there was a lot of publicity around the fact that the I think it's the eight wealthiest people in the world have more wealth than the entire bottom 50% of humanity. Yes, I I did read that, and then I, in my book, I actually calculated how much money the top 60 richest people, or maybe it was 50, would need to give to the poorest people around the world to bring them out of extreme poverty and starvation, to just give them the enough money that they could have enough food and, and to survive. And it was astonishing. They would give up almost nothing compared to the vast wealth. It Ugh. was like, what? 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 What's going on here? Um, it, it's insane. That really brought it home. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the article, they were talking about that if they divided up the money of the eight wealthiest, it would it would equal enough money for everyone on Earth to make two hundred thousand a year. So okay. I think this, I'm not sure that's quite right. Because yeah, I think the numbers got, they got revised. But if the whole idea is there is that you could redistribute from the, from the wealthiest to those most in need, and the wealthiest wouldn't even know it. Right. 
Which brings into the idea or brings into my mind the notion of a universal basic income, because I think that's something that actually could get some traction, at least from what I've heard. A universal basic income or a guaranteed basic income, how, do you, how does that fit into your idea and, and are, do you favor that and do you think that's a real possibility? Yes, well, of course, I think it's a real possibility. And I point out, like, there's several forms it can take. It goes under different names, but almost all economists think it's feasible, it's possible. And all the experiments that have been done in pilots to see what do people do when they have a minimal income, do they get lazy, or what happens. In fact, every single study shows that when people have a secure minimal income, they are much better off. They work harder. They they almost get a new lease on life. Oh, hey, I can now survive. I don't have to worry. I can really go out and explore and try and make things better for my family and my community. It's yes. Every single time, it's been really positive. And so anytime somebody says we can't do that because people are lazy, just say, sorry, you're wrong. Right. <laughs> That's what I had read too, and I, I like they did this. Uh, anyway, I don't need to get into specific studies. You're right, and I, I read that, and it's just like, duh. Well, why don't we do that? I mean, that that is such a you know a game that could be such a game changer because, like you said, if you didn't have to worry about you know the basics to have you know the shelter and a, and a comfortable living, it's not like so. It, we, you know, the question is, what is the what is that minimum threshold? You know, that would have to be worked out and agreed upon, but. If you had that, it seems that people would, like you say, would, and the the evidence bears it out, that people would um, look out and look at life differently. And they would probably get out of that competitiveness that the current structure and model tends to feed and fuel. Like you said, um, that when you're, you know, staticizing and looking at how much the other people have and you want to play that game, it's a bankrupt game in terms of your happiness, but it's people get caught in it. Oh, Todd, they do. And, you know, what's, what Buddhist economics says is, you know, competition is actually about money and consumption. Mm-hmm. And it's not about the things that when people back up and say, what's really important to me, what's meaningful to me, oh, my relationships, my experiences, my opportunities, helping my community, making sure my neighbors are okay – all those things aren't competitive at all. They're all like we call it win-win. I yeah. go out and help people. I feel better. They're better off. And it's very meaningful to, to all of us. Whereas I'm only in competition when I'm trying to get my raise at work or when I'm out trying to find the best price or dickering over buying this or buying that. It's like then competition gets in the way and it does become a win-lose game. What I get, someone else doesn't get. But not the things that we are not don't have to compete for are actually the things that we care the most about. Well, isn't it true, ultimately, Claire, that we don't really have to compete even for a raise at work? I mean, one of the one of the things that I notice, and I don't know if it's just a semantic uh, difference between our two philosophies, is that you talk about interdependence, and we talk about mutual support, which equates to doing what is for the highest good of all, including each individual. So we would approach getting the the uh, raise at work by saying, you know, th- this is this is why I believe it would benefit the whole 
for me to get a raise and it's only going to be right for me to get a raise if it actually benefits the whole as well as me. And so there isn't any competition even in that situation. It's evaluated by by looking at the needs of the whole. Well, I, I think that's, of course, right, because interdependence for me just means that everybody's well-being affects my well-being. Yes. And, and that we're all, we're all in the same boat. So but, we're, we're it's just a semantic <laughs> right. difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just, I think, I think that's right. But what, what's, I think, very hard is um, when you are out in the work world and in your everyday life and you run across these situations that do actually end up, end up the boss makes it competitive. Yes. You know, the boss thinks he has to make it competitive to make you perform your best. And so it's very hard to get out of that game. Um, yes, it Even is. when you say to yourself, oh, I'm so happy this other person got this, got the raise and not me, the promotion, um, even though he's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> it, it can be hard. Yeah. Well, it doesn't really work in the in the in the level of human consciousness we have right now. I completely agree with you. It is it is completely uh, unreasonable to think that we're going to function in in the world of mutual support and the highest good of all. But but it's something we certainly need to aspire to and work toward. Helen, I totally agree. <laughs> it's just um, you're right. It's like we almost so need to to change our way of thinking about it at work. And Absolutely. work might be the, the hardest place to make the changes. It's, it's much easier to make the changes within our community groups and our neighborhoods and, and with our friends. Then it's really easy to feel good when everybody's doing well and trying to take care of them if they're not. But the minute you step into the workplace, there are very few workplaces that make you feel like there is this common good um, it's hard. Yeah. It, and I, it's not just workplaces. I mean, it is, I was, I heard a story on NPR this week about science and a group of scientists coming together to rethink the incentives because so many scientists are being compelled to fudge their data. Um, mm-hmm. and they, they're looking at the, you know, what are the incentives? What are the, like you, you get awarded grants, right? If you do good research, if your research doesn't turn out something that you're expecting to turn out, if you continue to not produce anything, that's then you know it it it's that whole fear that drives people to to make these kind of uh, uh, so it's not just I mean I mean I guess science is a profession also it's a work it's a job so uh, it's it's challenging. Yeah, no that that's a really good point, and that's where economists are spot on by saying I think we continually say what are the incentives it's really important to set up incentives and incentives don't have to be money Um, they can be all kinds of things but we need to set up incentives so that we respond individually and collectively in a way that helps the social welfare well it doesn't that yeah it's not just you or me but as as Helen was saying what's our collective sort of human social welfare together. Well, doesn't that go back to what you were saying before about having a minimal universal income that it's the hardest to get competition out of the workplace because the workplace is where we believe our very sustenance and existence is dependent on getting that job. 
And so, you know, it's natural that we would be competitive for those quote-unquote limited resources at work. Right. So and it, it's like until we change until we change that where people don't feel their livelihood is constantly under threat, then it's going to be difficult to, to change the way we think about competition. I, I think that's true for, say, the bottom third or fourth, 30 to 40 percent of the jobs. But a lot of the competition is, you know, sort of in the middle class jobs. And right. And that's and when I go out and talk to people, I'm often talking to professionals and and young parents, and they they would like to not be on this materialistic treadmill, and they honestly don't know how to get off. It's like they they feel overwhelmed. They never have enough time. They want to spend more time with their family and children, but you know work is demanding, and and they they actually end up saying, you know, I don't even have time to think about it much less restructure my life in any meaningful way. Um, and they're exhausted. Mm-hmm. So what's the answer for those uh, people? I mean, what, what, what's your um, prescription or how, do you, are, how are you uh, speaking to them? I tell them that they really do need to just think, what is the most meaningful thing to me right now? Mm. And then decide that you can restructure your life to make more time. They always say my family and my kids when they're parents. And I said, you know, you can structure your life to make more time for that. You, I don't know how you can do it, but you actually know how you can do it. And time after time, I've, they don't do it that next day, but over time you go back and in six months and say, what is Actually, it might be as simple as, you know, it's so interesting. I learned to say no to right. requests that weren't, weren't that important. I didn't need to do them. And, I, and, I, and they said, I kept remembering what you told me about the opportunity cost. Just always say, what's the opportunity cost? Oh, having dinner with my kids. Well, then, hey, no problem saying no. Right. And I, I had one man come back and say, you know, I just told my boss, I am leaving every day at 5 o'clock because I have to pick my kids up from school. So I have to be there. Thank you. And the boss accepted it. Yeah. So often when you go and you say, this is what I have to do and why I'm doing it, and it relates to my family and my own well-being, then often, unless you're a terrible boss, and then you should leave and get a different job anyway. Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's awesome. It's it's really the commitment is what I'm hearing. The commitment, the dedication, like the real the real commitment to to look at that and explore it and see what you can do. Uh, doesn't this doesn't this bring us back to the societal pressures, Claire? That um, you know, and our fear. You know, we're basically social animals. We we feel that deep need to connect, and we are so afraid of being thrown out of the tribe. And, you know, I hear this. I'm a yeah. counselor. I'm a, my day job is a counselor. And I, I've talked to so many families where they feel pressured that their kid has to do all these extracurricular activities, which, of course, take away from all their family. They have no family time because they're going to this soccer game and that little league game and this, you know, whatever, Pop Warner football game and, and so on and so forth. And it's it's really is about their fear of looking like a weirdo to to the rest of the community. 
And it's so sad because, and I'm so thrilled to hear you saying that over time, if you present this, that people start asking themselves, is this really true? Is this really right? Is this really right for my family and me? And I I so agree with what you're saying that we need to just pause when you were saying that people don't even have time to think about it. I mean, what a sad statement that we don't even have time to reflect on our lives and whether they are the lives that we want to be living. And when we do, we realize, just as you said, Claire, sometimes the the shifts that we need to make are not that huge, but they they have they make a big difference. Yes, they can make a they can make a huge difference, and so we really do want to let people also think. We've mentioned a lot about a minimum income, but we also care about other government policies. So, for example, in Europe, they they have policies that require family leave time that's paid yes maternity leave time that and paternity leave time that's paid um overtime that's paid and you could begin it way before 40 hours in a week you could begin it at 35 hours or 32 hours so there are lots of things that the government can also do to restructure the workplace and and so i think a basic income is a great place to start but that's not the only thing. You know, we're already we already have a lot of health and safety regulations at work, but we ought to think of health and safety in a much broader way in terms of providing the the paid leave to care for our children and for other people and our families and to give us a work life balance that makes us healthy and, and give us you know, provides a meaningful life. I love that and I and I love that you're mentioning all those alternative ways that we can begin the process because even though it has been suggested I think in Sweden and Denmark and some of the Nordic countries uh, to have a, a minimum universal income I don't think the United States is is quickly heading in that direction unfortunately and so having some of those other ideas put in place to, that could make a meaningful difference could be the next transition that's right, and and I think every economist will tell you it's a we've really got to start thinking right now about how to shorten the work week, and how to um, and not because they're thinking of family life balance, which is really important, but they're thinking much more about automation of work, and. I, I was just going to ask you about that, so I'm so glad you're segueing into that. Right, so. We keep talking, well, the robots are coming. Well, the robots are here. It's just more robots are coming. And economists do disagree on how quickly jobs are being automated and how quickly we're using artificial intelligence and so forth. But we all agree that it's having a huge impact, that that jobs are disappearing much more because of automation than of, say, global trade. So we need to think ahead and, first of all, to have a basic income, but to go beyond that, because everybody, almost everybody I've talked to, they want to work. They want to have a job that they enjoy, that gives them some meaning to their life and some structure, and gives them a chance to earn a little more money uh, for their families. So you have to say, well, just a minute, you don't have to work 40 to 50 hours a week. That's not required. But we need to have adequate wages and what we call um, we call it living life wages, so that 
when the work hours go down to, say, 30, 32 hours a week, that you can still get a, a comfortable income from that. I like that idea. <laughs> that's kind of my that's kind of my work. I'm a web designer and I don't work more than 25 hours a week. I mean, I work a lot on the inner revolution, so <laughs> that's my other job that I don't get paid for, but <laughs> But yeah, it does free me up to be able to do these other things. That's right. And these other things are really meaningful to you, Todd, because you're it's it's a contribution to community and society. And yes. it's using your talent, which is great. Yeah, I uh, I do a lot of volunteer work with the 350 local group um, cool. to go out and you know help change the law in California to preclude energy and and reduce air pollution and and that feels great because it's also a way of using my own skills and talent and knowledge to help the world. And and but we can only do that if we're not working. 50 hours a week or 70 hours a week or whatever it is, the crazy work that people are doing. Right. You know, and you're on so it, right. I was, I was watching, not in, in preparation for this, last, uh, this, but last night I was watching, uh, we were having some laughs in our family, and uh, Christine was showing me a show called Portlandia. Speaking of Portland, it's pretty funny. But anyway, um, I don't want to go too far off topic, but um, – there was this skit done by uh, Stephen Colbert about McDonald's, and they have this whole uh, thing to help their employees, <laughs> and they help them create a budget and so forth. And it's hysterical because they show in their budget there's no money for heating. <laughs> oh my gosh. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. And um, I'm, I'm kind of missing the whole thing, but it's, it's um, the, the kind of silliness that is uh, – what you were just talking about, like that people this and this was on two jobs, and they still didn't have enough money for heating. This they mm. that their their budget was was contingent upon them working at McDonald's and then having another job. So you talk about the hours people are spent working. So like you said, those people at at the bottom, they they are in the worst position because they they have to work and the, they work in jobs that for the most part don't provide a whole lot of meaning other than the connections they get to make with the people they work with. That's right. And even retail jobs like that, if they paid adequately, which they don't, but if they paid adequately, they could also make, make sure that um, parts of the job are, you know, not so awful and that other parts are actually can be fun. So you can always make sure people can sit part of the time or they can be comfortable when they're working or that they can they have a break room that's actually nice and they can go see friends and talk to people and at least during breaks and that they they aren't aren't they aren't counted their time is not counted it's like in other words there's enough time to service everyone in a respectful and even fun way yeah so because even doctors now are feeling like they're on a you know a production line and it's like just a second we're going the wrong way on this yeah well, and how do you are. change that with the with the uh, structures of corporations where the CEO makes you know I don't know how many x times more than the you know the the basic worker um, uh, do have, I'm sure economists think about that <laughs> that one economists think a lot and they're in every single study that has compared CEO pay to their company performance and this is footnoted in my book actually my book is filled with endnotes um, if you ever want to look something up. But 
there have been at least three studies that showed that, in fact, the CEO pay is not related to the company performance in terms of profitability, in terms of stock price, and in terms of revenue growth. Any measure, it's like, and in fact, in one study at the Fortune 500, the CEO pay was negatively related to company performance. It's like, mm. what? Yeah. Um, and so when the CEOs say, oh, we deserve it, the answer is no, in fact, you don't deserve it. But we set up, unfortunately, in the 80s, we set up some ways that we thought would, in fact, reduce CEO pay. Well, it did reduce CEO pay, and they started paying themselves in stocks and stock options. So now right. CEO pay is disproportionately stock and stock options worth millions of dollars. It's taxed very low. It's it's like we need to really change the way we tax their pay, and we need to totally rethink what's okay for them to to earn in terms of our taxation program. Right, right. One thing I would like to bring up, what you were talking about earlier, Claire, or Todd was actually about working at McDonald's and then having to have a second job, um, that I think it's so important to leave our listeners with the message that even if you are trapped in a in a financial situation in which you have to earn enough money or don't even earn enough money by working two jobs that that we can offer them the hope that they can still change the way they view their lives that they can still change the way they treat their families and the way they treat their fellow employees and the way they relate to their customers that they can still identify and focus on the things that they find meaningful in their lives, even if they can't change some of the substantive things that they'd like to change. Well, That's- right. Although, you know, sometimes when you're, when you don't have enough money to pay for heating or food, it's really hard and you're exhausted. It's sometimes hard to live in the moment. And in, in Buddhist Very. economics, yeah, I've always thought, you know, you can't really feel your and, and sort of help your spiritual side of life, this interconnectedness with people and nature, until your basic consumption needs are met, until they're, you're not hungry and your kids are fed and you're not freezing to death and you're not getting shot at when you walk out your door. And, you know, when you just are in a situation where your basic consumption needs are met, then it's there's none of us have any excuse to say just a second my basic consumption needs are met and now I should really be kind and relate to the people around me and and feel empathy for those who are less well off and to enjoy the my friends and my neighbors because you're right Helen then we really do have the time and the opportunity to enjoy life in all the ways that you mentioned I agree with you completely. I just am trying to look for something that people can do now, even if they are trapped in that poverty level. Because, you know, you you meet people. Uh, I You know, living in Southern California, we are in contact with a lot of Hispanic people. And they have such a way in their culture of having parties and celebrating life and being hospitable. And, you know, they... If you came for dinner, you know, you're, you're welcome to join in and share 
the the meager earnings that they have and I just feel like even even poor people can focus on the moment it makes it a lot harder and I'm certainly not advocating for leaving people in that condition but I just I don't want to feel that that their lives are hopeless in the meantime right I I think one of the most important things for all of us to do and and I really push this in my book because it's very important to to Buddhist economics is to have a sangha. A sangha just means a community group, a group of people that you share your values with. And mm. it's like a, a really important part of Buddhism that you have a, this group of people, you care for each other, you share each other's values, you help each other out, and you certainly get together and have feasts and enjoy life and even if it's in this very simple way but it's critical to um, sort of enjoying life and experiencing life is to do it within this community of friends and family and neighbors so that's that's very important to me and then in Buddhist economics we say well it's not only important for experiencing life and enjoying it but it's also important for standing up and making all the demands of the policies we wanted. That right now with climate change and and right now with all the problems going on in the world, we also need to get together with our communities or sangha and go out into the streets, resist the policies that are hurting people and the planet, and demand better policies. So we resist and then we demand the policies that we know will help people in the planet. Cool. Amen, well, amen, sister. Yes, we're right with you. We're going to be at the climate march here in San Diego. Oh, yeah. great. And I'll be here at the one in Oakland. Yeah, awesome. I figured when you talked about 350.org. There's a couple other questions I have, and I also want to mention our event that's coming up on May 6th because it's really tied to this, and you're going to be there uh, via video, albeit, which is going to be awesome. Um so we did an interview last week with Claire via um, Zoom video conference, and she's going to be joining us for the beginning part of uh, an event called No More Divide and Conquer. And that's going to be on May 6th here in San Diego, but it's May 6th everywhere from, uh, from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And it's really a conversation about this very topic, um, how we tend to divide people up. Bernie Sanders talks a lot about that, how we have, you know, the, that the leaders, the political leaders try and divide us up and get us to, to pit one another against each other instead of looking at like, okay, where, why is this? And that's one of the questions Beth asked you, and I loved your answer. So um, uh, for those who are listening, we, you know, we welcome you. It's a free event. We hope you'll join us on, and if you have more information, you can go to the innerrevolution.org and just go to our upcoming events page. I'd also like, Claire, for you to say more about, you know, how people can get your book. I'm, I know it's on Amazon, but uh, I know you have a website, and please tell, tell people what, how, how they can learn more. Oh, thank you for asking about my BuddhistEconomics.net website. But actually, if you just do Buddhist Economics Brown, um, on, you'll, you'll find it Googling. And if you go on Amazon, it's there. But also, if you go on my website... Uh, talks about the independent bookstores and other ways to get it. And uh, actually, every bookstore I've walked in has had lots of copies. And friends from all over the U.S. say, oh, I saw your book at this little bookstore somewhere. Bloomsbury's done a great job of getting the book out in bookstores. 
awesome. um, which are which are nice refuge for people who like to read and go in the bookstore or order it. Or if there's a Kindle, if there's an audio version. But also, yep. if you go on my website, they're podcasts, just like this radio show. And their blogs, I wrote a blog not long ago about it really does matter what kind of car you buy and drive and how that's affecting climate change. And, uh, and lots of blogs that, that relate to many of the questions we're talking about today. So, um, and I'd love to hear from you. You can send me a message and I'll always respond. Cool. That's so cool. lovely. And, you know, and I, there's I, also a Facebook page. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I just go ahead and tell what the Facebook page is, Claire. Oh, and it's under Buddhist Economics, Claire Brown, too, or Buddhist Economics Brown. You'll find it on Facebook. And it's a pretty active page, and I love to hear from people. Wonderful. So that's that's a wonderful invitation. I just wanted to comment on the Sangha idea and the, and the collectives because during these times of so much contention and so much insecurity, so much financial insecurity and every other kind of insecurity. I mean, the U.S. just dropped the quote-unquote mother of all bombs on ISIS today, I guess, in, in Afghanistan. And, you know, it's just such a crazy, crazy time and so much fear that I, I think the, the suggestion about grounding ourselves in our communities and our spirit, whether they're a spiritual community or, you know, a, a group common group like Sierra Club or whatever it is to feel that feeling of safety and bonding in our group and and especially a group with whom you can take action and and begin to fight for the revolution and the revolution in the way that we think about things the revolution in the way we treat each other the revolution in the way we make money and spend money uh, and I, it's again, it's a grassroots thing, but it's like we can all join our sanghas together eventually, hopefully. But it starts at home. It starts with with one person at a time joining with uh, a, some sort of like-minded community. And I think the power of those, just like you were saying about your joining 350.org, you know, and we do the innerrevolution.org. It's like find your place, and. It, it does enrich your life so much as we transition toward Buddhist economics. Y- yes, yeah. and it's interesting. Whenever I talk to people, I say, well, I don't really have a, a group. I say, oh, do you go to church? Oh, they might do that. Or if they don't, they say, well, do you have a reading club? Or do you garden with anyone? Or, you know, do you have a play group with your kids? And they always say, oh, my gosh, I do all these things. Or I do two or three of these things. Of course I have And we should just think more broadly uh, within our groups about what we're doing and what we care about. And I say, yes, that's exactly what will really help. Um, And so it's interesting. I think everybody in some sense has a group if they just think about it. It might even just be three neighbors that they see all the time. Um, But we all have a group in some way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so true, uh, Claire, what you're saying. Um, I can't emphasize it enough either because it, the the sense of community and, and bond that we feel in the innerrevolution.org, you know, um, I mean, I've always been a community-minded person. I, I just feel it even when I go on the subway in New York City or San Francisco because we don't have much of a subway here in San Diego. We do have a trolley, but I just... I feel that connection and I want to be around people and feel that, you know, that communal feeling, the, the commons, the whole, just the whole idea of the commons for me is so 
inspiring and so uh, rejuvenating. So I hope people will will take you on that charge to you know expand the idea of what the group is. You're already meeting in groups. Let's expand what we think about and what we talk about in those groups and talk about what we really care about and what really matters to us. I love that. Yes. Let me and let me uh, tell us about next week's show. And Claire, okay. you you can think about any closing remarks you would like to make, Claire, while I, while I read uh, while I talk about the next week's show. Great. And the title is "Work, Housework, Money, and Fun: The Invisible Connection That Keeps Us Down." An interview with Beth Green, and I will be interviewing her next week. And I thought that it was such a an interesting coincidence that we happen to have you this week and her next week talking about, in, in some ways, a related topic. In 1950, guest Beth Green heard a popular song, Lucky, Lucky Me, I'm a lucky son of a gun. I work eight hours, I sleep eight hours, and have eight hours of fun. Even as a child, Beth was baffled by those words. People worked eight hours and slept eight hours, but definitely didn't have eight hours of fun. Who does? This little ditty shows the lie that we live every day, the lie that work is what we get paid for. This narrow definition ignores all the unpaid work we do every day and disguises how housework and relaxation are connected to work. Aren't we either getting ourselves ready for work, recovering from work, helping others function at work, (laughs) avoiding work, or raising the next generation of workers? (laughs) Beth says that the way we have been taught to connect work with money has led to the disempowerment of men and women, blinded us to our overwork and kept us divided and down. So what do we do? Let's start by revolutionizing the conversation about work right now. Tune into this show and call in if you can. So I'm cool. really excited about that, and I think it's an excellent follow-up to our show today with you, Claire. Yes. Uh, it sounds terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you want to say that we didn't ask you? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, let me just thank everyone for listening in and, and just remind everyone that we you should stop and appreciate all the things you're doing for others and be grateful when others help you. And enjoy Mother Earth and remember that now is the time that we need to come together and heal the earth as we heal ourselves. And we want to all together, to we can join, we can make life meaningful for everyone. Totally agree. <laughs> Love what you said, Claire. And, you know, it is. If we come together, we can make life meaningful for everyone. It makes me want to cry, you know, hearing you say that. It's something worth fighting for, and it's something worth coming together for. And thank you so much for all the work you do, for the book you wrote, and for all the t- times you go out and speak about it. And uh, the ripples of your thoughts and your hard work are making a big difference. And we honor you. Thank you so much for this beautiful discussion. Thank you, too. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.